Welcome back to The Wife Who. I'm Caroline. I'm Louise. And this is the podcast where we talk about women who did something interesting. We just, in the last episode, had, well, we had a hat trick, didn't we, Louise? Of we did. Ancient women, but not ancient as in old, as in <laughs> one from ancient China, one from ancient Greece, and sisters from... Pretty ancient Vietnam. Ancient Vietnam, is that a thing? So that was great. This time it's my turn. Just a reminder before we get into it that you can contact us, podcast at thewifewho.com. We've also got a Facebook page with info on and a Facebook group that we've set up in case anybody wants to get on there, send suggestions if they prefer Facebook, have a chat. Do come and find us on there. Is there anything that you want to add, Lou, just before we, or, or should we just get straight into it this episode? Let's just dive right in. I'm excited to Let's hear about who you're going to tell me about. Yeah, and I feel like the last several episodes we've just talked about coronavirus for ages, so maybe we just give everyone a break, eh? Because really, nothing has changed. We're still living in coronavirus, so. Yep, it's all true, and we're still fretting about toilet roll and wine. So let's get on with it. <laughs> okay, today I'm going to talk to you about a Hilda. Ooh, a Hilda. Yeah, and do you remember how when we saw Kate Fox, who we've already talked about a bunch on here, she actually listed like four different women called Hilda. She did. It's clearly yeah. quite a significant name. It is, and they were all northern women, but I thought that would be too obvious, so I've gone for a totally different Hilda, but I mean, I was talking to Chris about it earlier, and he said, maybe you should make it a theme, maybe maybe it should be called The Hilda Who. The Hilda Who, because there's probably enough of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll remember from my last story, I covered Gertrude Bell, who was Gertrude of Arabia, a very exotic exciting lifestyle that's right this time we're going to talk about the bbc <laughs> oh it's very topical at the moment isn't it it kind the of BBC. is yeah <laughs> well given yeah. that you know the the tories want to out the bbc and get rid yep and yeah the uh, british public is being encouraged to galvanize against that and hang on to the bbc yeah so it's in our consciousness here in the UK at the moment and for all our uh, hordes of international listeners who maybe haven't heard of the BBC. <laughs> Did you get the email asking you to uh, uh, reply to a survey to talk about what you love about the BBC and why you no. want to save the BBC? Yeah, I'll forward you this email. I haven't oh, yeah. replied yet, but fully intend to. Yes, I will. I will fill that in and send it back. I don't mind paying the TV licence. I really don't. So... Obviously, the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, you have, you have to pay a national TV licence, but it is worth it because we get a relatively unbiased news feed all the time. There's websites, there's iPlayer that has loads of stuff on it, a lot there's of Helen Mirren on there. BBC food recipes. Yes, good food. It's great. I, I Honestly, I would miss the BBC Oh, so I love much. the BBC. Yeah, me too. So I thought we would talk about the BBC's female pioneer Hilda Matheson today. Hilda Matheson. Yeah, you've not heard of her then? No. No, okay, and I hadn't either. And in fact, a bit of a weird thing, but I don't know, maybe you can make your own conclusion at the end of this, but I kind of get the impression that she's been written out of history and I'm not sure I know why. Was her husband credited for all her work? That usually happens. 
<laughs> she didn't have a husband and we'll come on to that later. Mm. So the inspiration for this actually comes from, believe it or not, an article by Sandy Toxvig, who in, it's actually a Guardian article, not a BBC article, funnily enough, where she lists her top 10 unsung heroines. So I thought that was a great place to start. So how did you stumble on this article? Well, Honestly, I literally Googled the words unsung heroines because I had in my mind that I wanted to do someone that isn't that well known. I, I like to find out about and bring to attention the women that have been overlooked by history. And I thought, how can I find these obscure women that aren't just, you know, famous ladies and whatnot? So I just typed in unsung heroines and this article from Sandy Tuxvig popped up. Well done, Sandy. Yeah, and it turns out it was done as part of a promotion for her book called Girls Are Best. Now, I did go and look at this book, and it basically it lists a ton of women's achievements, but only like a, like a paragraph per woman. So I didn't really use it as a source, but it's nice for sort of a, like a primer or a list of almost women's who's who. She said in this article, I thought it was great, history is full of fabulous females who have been systematically ignored, forgotten, or simply written out of the records. They're not all saints, they're not all geniuses, but they do deserve remembering. And I just felt like that really kind of crystallizes what we're trying to do here. So this is a journey for us to learn about and remember these fabulous females, as she puts it. And it really resonates with what Kate Fox was doing her yes. whole night about, wasn't it? Definitely. So she grabbed my attention straight away. And Hilda Matheson was number one on this list. So... Thank you, Sandy. And Sandy and also Jenny Murray from last week. You know, we're still here <laughs> if you yeah. want to come on. Hi, or, Jenny. You know, like, <laughs> Hi, Jenny. <laughs> Hi, Sandy. <laughs> so Hilda Matheson. So she was born in 1888 in London to Scottish parents. I know you have a particular oh, soft spot I'm for such a Scottish accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so she was in a London. Scot. Oh, she was born in London, but to Scottish yeah. parents. Okay. That's right. Uh, what year? Uh, 1888 she was born okay. now i i don't think she would have been dreadfully scottish she went to boarding school for four years in england and then she wanted to go to cambridge but she left school at 18 and her dad had really ill health and it was one of those where oh let's travel to the continent to get some fresh of air course. and mm -hmm. but the good thing about that was she became fluent in france german in, in france <laughs> in french german and italian because they lived wow. in all three of those countries so that was helpful and when they came back in 1908 so she's actually 20 at this point she then gets to study history for three years that's what she wanted to do but as a as part of the society for oxford home students and she's not, it's not a degree because I don't think women were allowed degrees back then, of course. But she does three years of this mm -hmm. and then she goes to work as a part-time secretary. And I think secretary probably meant a bit more than maybe it does in our minds now back then. But even so, part-time secretary for the Right Honourable Herbert Fisher at New College in Oxford. And he was first cousin to Virginia Woolf. Oh, hello. Yes. <laughs> Have we discussed this on this podcast before or not? I can't remember. Me and Caroline are obsessed with Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. So Hilda worked for mm -hmm. Herbert Fisher. Fisher, yes. And Herbert Fisher was the first cousin, cousin. Yeah. to Virginia of Woolf. 
Yes, and Vanessa okay. Bell, her sister, of course, as well. Shall we just briefly share, because I don't think we have previously, that you and I have had a literary girl trip together to Virginia Woolf's home. We have. And also Vita Sackville West's home yeah, and her family We tried home. to go, didn't we, to the calendar house, yeah, but yeah, it did. was one of those Monday National Trust closed mm. days. But we got to look at it, though. We did. It, they were dear, and it was lovely, so... Uh, this guy is cousin of Virginia Woolf. So she does this for a little while. Then Hilda goes to work for the guy who was the keeper of the Ashmolean Museum. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. Right. So this is the world's first university museum in Oxford, which originally opened in the late 1600s. It was like a cabinet of curiosities type feel. Um, and it's pretty famous. It's, it's still open today. Uh, well, I, I mean, it isn't because coronavirus, <laughs> but it would be. Uh-huh. So it's pretty in famous. Normal and times. She, yeah. And she worked there. So then when she's 26, World War One starts and she goes to work at the war office in army intelligence. So she goes to Rome to work at the British military control office and she's doing intelligence. And this is really similar to Gertrude Bell from my last story. It That's what is, she did. Right. Yeah. And it turns out right at the end of when I was finishing up my research for this, like literally this afternoon, it turned out I, I happened across this article I was just about finished that said Lawrence of Arabia ac- recruited Hilda Matheson. They're all connected, yeah. these people. Aren't they? It's so weird. So well, it's just a little aside there. It's not actually pertinent to the rest of the story, which really is mainly about the BBC. After the war, she briefly worked for Lord Lothian. Uh, well, he wasn't Lord Lothian at the time, but he introduces her to Britain's first MP, Lady Nancy Astor. Is this Britain's now, first female MP? Yes. So Lady Nancy, Nancy Astor. Nancy Astor. Okay. And she, she wasn't actually the first one to be elected. She was the second one. But the first one, I think she had something to do with Sinn Féin? Mm, this is where I might get in trouble for not remembering my research properly. But the first one, she didn't take up her seat in line with her party policy. So Lady Nancy Astor was the second one, but the first to take up her seat. So it's a, yeah, I'm not sure how much that really matters, certainly in this story. Now, Lady Astor, I did look into her thinking, oh, well, if she was the first female MP, she sounds like an interesting candidate, actually, for this podcast. But I don't know. I mean, looking into her story, she was one of these nouveau riche, American, comes over to England, debutante types. She marries a lord. Her sister marries Charles Gibson. Have you heard of the Gibson girls? No. In Victorian times. Yeah, they've got a really distinctive Victorian silhouette with like a, uh, they've got like a high necked collar, like Edwardian style with um, like a big, hair i'm doing lots of things with my hands and even I love you that you're telling me it. about I mean, the way they look their clothes their hair well, it's because gibson girls is this it's a fashion statement it's, it's like dior's new look it's a fashion thing i'll post a picture on the website of gibson girls just for anyone who cares about this but it is a really famous sort of edwardian i guess victorian yeah edwardian image anyway so her sister was married to this guy 
but she herself, it seems, was a bit of a controversial figure. Her politics were a little bit questionable. Um, she didn't. Was she a Tory? Yeah, she was a Tory. She also didn't necessarily have the right ideas about everything. So I'm, I'm just going to move straight on past her. But she appointed Hilda as her political secretary. Now, because Lady Astor was an aristocrat and she knew all the sort of top-notch you know, the kind of people you want to hobnob with if you're trying to get somewhere. This means that Hilda is suddenly having access to this huge circle of acquaintances, so politicians, intellectuals, society people. Is this how she met Lawrence of Arabia? Uh, no, so this is after the war. So we are now oh. coming up to 1926 at this point. So I've kind of rushed through most of her early life because okay. in 1926 is when she meets the guy who runs the BBC. So this is a guy called John Reith, or at least I think it's pronounced Reith. It's spelled R-E-I-T-H. What do you reckon? Is that Reith? Reith. Reith? Mm. <laughs> Reith? Mm. I'm going to say Reith just because that's how my brain is interpreting it, but everybody out there, I'm sorry if that's wrong. So this is in 1926. So the BBC was formed in 1922 and John Reith had been appointed the general manager and it was actually the British Broadcasting Company it wasn't a corporation as such yet and it was just put together by like there were like four staff it was no big deal and it was it sounds like it was put together by radio like wireless manufacturers just kind of to experiment and see what they could do and how they could broadcast and it wasn't a big deal at the time because it was just radio back then right absolutely was it television? Yeah. yeah yeah no it was just um just radio initially so in 1926 they've been going about four years and it started to grow a little bit and john reith meets her through lady astor's general acquaintance and he decides hilda matheson is the woman that he wants for this really influential job director of talks which I kind of think is a great title for a job, director of talks. That's almost what we're doing. You know, if you're not going to be a tornado warrior of justice, <laughs> then being yeah. a director of talks is a pretty good second thing to go for, yeah. isn't it? Uh, from what I can gather, what this means, so talks was basically all the editorial, like basically all the key programmes that went out from the BBC. It seems to me it's more or less everything. Second in command. Yeah, uh, pretty much. So I wonder why he wanted her. Like, I'd love to know what made him think you're the, you're the person for this. From what I can understand, her personality was very forthright, clearly going to get shit done, intelligent, driven, just absolutely knew what needed to happen. And I think he was probably just struck with the force of her personality. We'll come on to this a little more later, what she was like as a person. Well, she was a Hilda, so... She was a Hilda. And, and yeah. I don't know if you remember, but I'm sure Kate Fox told us that the name Hilda means battle or struggle. Yeah, so it's that's often familiar. strong mm -hmm. women. So 1926, he persuades her to give up her job as political secretary to Nancy Astor, MP, which is a pretty good job to take up this really influential post now it's the 1920s so just to put this in context for women and employment and stuff for a minute the vote had been won in 1918 for those aged over 30 and you had this 
sex disqualification removal act thing that meant theoretically women could now seek a job in most professions. This is progress. It's not brilliant, Was but there it's progress. An age limit for them as well in terms of how old they had to be in order to pursue a job? Professions, I'm not sure. It doesn't say. But things are getting better incrementally. But there's, I mean, there's still definitely no equal pay. God forbid. And worse, if you got married, I mean, certainly, did you know this? If you got married, you were forced to retire and quit your job because you'd gotten married. You didn't have a choice. Uh, so this, yeah, this was I known as the that. marriage I mean, that, bar. I know from living in Japan that was a that was expected of women anyway. Like even recently. Um, expected or law yeah i think it was an expectation you know yeah. when i was living there which was what 10 years ago it was definitely yeah. an expectation but i guess it was law in england wasn't it until yeah i mean that's point. i mean I, I can get it being a cultural expectation but to make it law that you are forced to quit your job because you've chosen to get married like this is your choice one or the other in law that just seems crazy anyway yeah, it's family it's or work time. isn't it it's forcing you to mm. choose yeah but john reith our general manager of the bbc seems to have actually really cared about women and done good things for women at least initially so in 1926 the same year that he hired hilda he issued a statement declaring that women should be on the same footing as men with the same chances for promotion the same salary scales and that there's to be no marriage bar in that job at least not until later 1932 when i think it was law i may have got this mixed up but that they didn't have to quit in this particular company he was a feminist he was progressive right it sounds like he was although later you read some troubling things about him at one point he's described as a monster and his politics and some of his other ethics seem very questionable, but we'll come on to that. But I was impressed by reading this, that it seems like he cared and, and wanted to look after women and make sure there was a place for them and included them even as women in leadership roles, which was great. So when she became this, the first director of talks, so she's not the first female director, she's the first actual director there of talks, you know, that's, there wasn't one yeah. before her. So that's pretty great. That's like the first astronaut, the first British astronaut was female. <laughs> yes, the second time you've mentioned that. And I think you should. I, I want to see how many times you can bring that up because <laughs> you know what? Not enough people seem to know that, do they? I'm going to try and bring it up in every episode if I can. <laughs> I'll find a way to route back to it. Somebody's going to create like a um, podcast bingo for us. It's like, how many times does Caroline say, um, so, and how many times does Louise bring up? Talk about the first, <laughs> the first uh, astronaut being female. Oh, I love it. Right. So what was I say? Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you there. No, it's, it's funny. I'm glad that you do. So when she got this job, she revolutionized things. So the BBC was still very much a fledgling organization. And she grabbed the bull by the horns and created this ambitious environment where she demanded that the BBC explored everything that radio could do. She wanted to set up all sorts of new things. When I think in 19, I think in 1928 was when they became an actual corporation. And up to that point, 
they were only really allowed to read news bulletins from elsewhere. There was no reporting per se. So when she came in and they became a corporation, she was the first one to bring out news essentially from the BBC. So mm-hmm. Hilda Matheson is the woman, she's the wife who created BBC News. After this, they could report, they could, so there was this ban on broadcasting that was overturned. The BBC began reporting and she developed standards for the factual reporting of news and commentary and all this sort of thing. But she wanted to create a more personal, informal experience for the listener. So very much like what we're doing instead of, you know, you could just go buy buy a book about these people, but it's more personal and informal to listen to us telling you a rehashing (laughs) of something. And that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to make things... I mean, I don't know about you, but when I've seen the... um, the first examples of the television broadcastings of the BBC, they're very stuffy. Have you ever seen these black and white men in evening suits and stuff? And they're very, all very, very formal. Yes, very stuffy. She wanted to make it more inclusive. And accessible to absolutely the rest of Britain. Yeah. To be honest, she was still bringing in all the highbrow stuff. She was still going to the cultural elite, but she was making it more chatty almost, I think. Well, I guess at this, she was still in her 20s. Was she still quite young? Now then, it, so this is from 1928. No, so she's like 40 at this point. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, this is a big job for someone in their 20s to have. So we'll forgive her for not being in her 20s. So at this point, you know the um the guy I was telling you about, who's the general manager. I think he's now the the main overall director guy. Herbert Fisher. Uh, no, Reef. Uh, oh, Reef. Yes. Yeah, yeah. John Reef. John John Reef. Yeah. So he is getting a bit worried actually because he sees what she's doing and he sees that it's a ve- he thinks it's a very Americanized approach and we don't like that. We want to keep it more British, oh, more we're stiff British. Lip, yeah. <laughs> None of this American shit. Yeah, exactly, dear. So in order to counter those worries of his, she invites Britain's intellectuals to come on the radio and have a chat with the nation. So this includes loads of people that you'll have heard of, E.M. Forster, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells. Oh, the cultural elite, hello. Yes, yeah. And, of course, Virginia Woolf and Lisa Sackville-West. Naturally. They all came on. Well done, Hilda. Yes. Uh, And this is great. You know, she's making these arts accessible to the people. It's brilliant. And she also organised the first ever live broadcast of a political debate by the three leaders of the main British political parties, which, of course, is a big thing now, isn't it? That's what we do. It's huge. And she did the first first one of that. Yeah. Yeah. She also set up a programme called The Week in Westminster, which we still have today. And she, she set it up. She was a freaking trailblazer. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, she really was. She set this up specifically for women because she wanted to provide education from female MPs about the workings of Parliament deliberately aimed at the audience of new women voters because in 1928, all women over 21 got the vote. So ah, suddenly so you've got... It dropped from more. 30 to 21. Yes. 
And do you remember how with Gertrude Bell in my last story, she was anti-suffrage and she is like, well, people, the, women don't have the brains that are required <laughs> to understand. They don't have the education to, to engage. I Our, think I tried um, to like um, forget <laughs> that part of Gertrude Bell. It made me so yeah. sad. Yeah, exactly. She just didn't seem to care. Whereas Hilda, she is actively addressing exactly that issue. She's saying, yeah, you're right. Women haven't been educated in debate and parliament and the way all these things work. So let's educate them. Let's bloody bring them to the to the line and give them that education. Exactly. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. So at this point, I went onto the BBC website, of course, to read the overview of the history of the BBC. And there are a few pages listing key events. There's, you know, what happened in the 1920s, what happened in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. You got better timelines. not be about to tell me that Hilda is written out of the BBC history. I'm sorry to say, I really struggled, really struggled to find her on their website at all. BBC, I mean, I, how fucking dare you? Guys. I know. I mean, I have to question this. And I would love to hear from anyone that has any suggestion as to, you know, what has gone on here. But let me tell you my experience trying to find her in here. So first of all, I look in this like decades thing. There's no mention of her in the 20s, no mention of her at all in the 30s, in, in this timeline. Anyway, it talks about John Reith. Fine. No mention. It's like, OK. So then I just Google her name not Google, I'd search for it inside the BBC website. And up comes a series of articles. The top one says BBC archive people Hilda Matheson. Great. So I click on her name. Sorry, but we're having difficulty showing you the page you asked for. No. The content might have been removed or deleted, or you may have mistyped the link. What's going on? Someone had serious issues with Hilda. Well, I don't know. I mean, you can see all of the the titles of all these different articles. There's one where she writes a letter to H.G. Wells. I'm clicking on that. I'm getting the same error. You it's can't all access very that. odd. No, you can't get to these things. So I, I don't know why we can't find out about Hilda Matheson on the BBC website. Then they've got they have got this one article, which was quite interesting, if not good, called. Viewpoint, the pioneering women of the BBC's early years. It's like, great, here we go. Pioneering women. So the first thing that you see when you click on this article is this large photograph of a horde of women leaving the BBC building. And the picture, the caption says, um, cleaners. Right, so these are the cleaners, cleaners. leaving... Okay the building and I'm like well I, I mean you know cleaners obviously were really important but were they the pioneering women of the BBC's early years probably not and then like, I had to go quite a way down the article before I found like two sentences that even mentioned Hilda and it didn't go into any detail at all so yeah I really don't know what's going on there and from all the other stuff that I read it seems that despite this John Reith having in the 20s and 30s had this quite feminist sort of peak of looking after women, all this stuff. After that, and especially after the World War II times, actually the BBC's inclusion of women in leadership and in terms of equal pay and stuff like that kind of went downhill repeatedly. And I was talking about this earlier and apparently the BBC are still even now at the forefront of the arguments for equal pay for women performers, actresses, and, you know, that sort of thing. So 
the issue hasn't gone away. It hasn't because hasn't there been a female presenter just recently who's won that uh, trial about the gender disparity pay? Uh, yeah, that and sounds it, it right to me. actually went to trial. Yeah, I, I don't understand. You would think that the BBC would be desperate to not let that kind of thing go to trial because it makes them, it's not exactly good for their image, is it? Yeah, it, it really surprised me, this experience, because I would have absolutely thought that the BBC would be the pinnacle of championing every underdog, essentially. And for, women aren't that much of an underdog these days. And yet, I don't, I don't know, Hilda, they've let Hilda down, I think. I don't know. And in the process, beyond that, they've let down so many other women. It seems that way. I would love to hear from people who have any thoughts or views on this. Um, I'm not an expert in this, but it certainly gave me pause. I'm going to move on, though. So we talked about Virginia Woolf. We know that she worked with uh, her cousin, and we know that Hilda uh, also invited her on the show. We also know that Virginia and Vita, of course, were lovers during the early to mid-1920s. Of course. Uh, yeah, and Virginia Woolf really didn't like Hilda, especially after Hilda and Vita started a romantic relationship together. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well done, Hilda. <laughs> I know. The thing is, Vita, Vita loved the ladies, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Even though she was married, yeah. But I feel like Virginia, she was a bit more of a shy... She, yeah. You know, she, she didn't put it out there. I always got the impression that Virginia just really wanted Vita's soul. Like, she just wanted to just absorb her. She just loved everything about her. She loved her. And it was, yeah, whereas I feel like Vita just had an appetite for yeah. people. Life, like, yeah. Yeah. I agree. So Vita became Hilda's lover between 1929 and 1931. So quite Virginia a while. knew about this. Oh, yeah, she that did. must have really hurt her feelings. Yeah, she was not happy. And when did Virginia get invited on the show by Hilda? Oh, I don't know. I don't have the date on that. I mean, I'm, I kind of picture Virginia Woolf like being outwardly, oh, I'm really cool with it. You know, we're all progressive types here, but secretly dying inside. <laughs> you can just and picture I, it, I can imagine you? her seething as she's mm -hmm. doing the show. If, if Hilda's mm -hmm. around the studio... Virginia mm -hmm. must just have been seething. I've got a great quote from Virginia Woolf about her that I'll get to in a minute that you're really going to like. She, so Vita and Hilda wrote to each other incessantly and there are like 800 pages of their letters still held by the Nicholson family, which is um, Vita's husband. Uh, what's his name? Was it Henry Nicholson? Their family still have all of these letters. And there's a biography of Hilda Matheson by Michael Carney. And you can read quite a bit of that correspondence in there. Vita, so when... You've done some good research, Caroline. Some good detective largely, work on this woman. Seriously, largely Wikipedia. <laughs> but yeah, I, I did do a good bit of Googling as well. Vita wrote an obituary for Hilda Matheson. So obviously Hilda died before Vita. But I couldn't actually get a copy of that article without paying a subscription to a website, which frankly, I'm just not there yet. I'm, I'm not going to start paying for things just to read <laughs> an obituary, but maybe one day. But I did find a quote from it that indicated that Vita thought that she 
really cared, that Hilda really cared about the work that she did, that she really threw herself into this BBC educational, you know, women's rights, all of this, Mm -hmm. really enthusiastic about her. But also that Hilda was very determined, a bit abrasive even, what they would call spirited. (laughs) And some people found her hard to get on with. And this is where Virginia Woolf is quoted of having said, I mean, Virginia would have hated her, bearing in mind the context, right? But yeah, this is the quote. She affects me as a strong purge, as a hair shirt, as a foggy day, as a cold <laughs> in the head. <laughs> oh, she really didn't like Hilda. Yeah, she's like, she's an irritant and she makes me want to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it was just two strong personalities clashing in this love triangle that Vita was at the centre of? Yeah, they're just very different people. And obviously, Virginia is jealous as heck. So, yeah. Or or was it? I mean, yeah, slightly different thing with Virginia. But I do wonder if it isn't a lot of her perception of her personality wasn't just because she was a woman acting like a man in a job that normally belong to a man i don't think virginia would have had an issue with that she wouldn't have but all the other people that are saying she was very abrasive and determined and spirited you know totally and that's that problem with um women Mm. in a position of authority and power are seen as bitches rather than just men who are assertive so what was that um that parody of the megan something song it's all about the bass or something and you sent me that one that's like you know that I'm a bitch, I'm a bitch, I'm a bitch in business. (laughs) Yeah, because we do. It happens even now all the time that if we are seen to be assertive as women in the workplace, we're seen to be bitchy. Whereas a man is just, oh, look at him. He's leadership material. He's assertive. (laughs) He's strong. Mm -hmm. But if you're a woman, you are a bitch. Yeah. So I wonder to what extent, and actually her biographer, who I mentioned before, Michael Carney, he says the same thing, that he wonders, what he says is, you can't avoid the conclusion that her main effect was not to know her place in a man's world. And I think that's probably got a lot to do with it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So she was definitely a bit of a personality, um, she wrote defending lesbianism as a state of being that she was proud of. It wasn't, she didn't want to hide it, which was great. You know, um, she had a lot about her. But now it's coming up to 1930 and Hilda has been working. She's a career woman and she has been worked so hard. She's a workhorse. She's overworked and she's experiencing. Is she 50 at this point? I think she's 42. But she's okay. she's really been giving it some welly. You know, she's... She's, she's basically getting to burnout. Yeah, because she's taken this new medium, this BBC radio, and she's created everything. It's like it's, she's been like God in seven days <laughs> with this thing, and she's created all these different shows, political elements, and you know, commentary and literature, and, and got all these people running around. And she's yeah, burnout, I think. And also, she's starting to experience conflict with this John Reith guy. He doesn't like that she's bringing in these guests from the Bloomsbury group, who we know as Vita and um, Virginia and all their pals, because he considers that they have loose morals. I mean, we know some of them are homosexual for a start. So 
definitely lose morals of there, course right? of, of course mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is quite fun. So they kick off, they have a bit of a fight when he refuses to let Vita's husband analyse Lady Chatterley's lover on air and Ulysses as well. (gasps) I mean, to be fair, that's some saucy stuff back in 1930, right? Back then it was, yeah. Yes. So I don't know whether I ought to have some sympathy with him for, you know, this is the BBC, dear. You know, (laughs) I don't know. I like that she was trying to do it anyway. So because of this... I love that she tried to do that. I know, me too. (laughs) The other one is Ulysses. So he wanted to do Ulysses as well, but I haven't actually read Ulysses. I'm a little ashamed of that. Have you read it? No, it's one of those books like War and Peace that I thought... Yeah, one day. Maybe one day. You know, apparently, I don't know if you saw this, but the sale of uh, books and titles like War and Peace and Ulysses has gone up in the lockdown. Because people are viewing it as the opportunity to actually read these novels now. Oh, and speaking of which, I can't believe I didn't mention to you before. Again, complete sidebar here. You remember how when we were talking about Ada Lovelace and you told me that Charles Dickens read from his popular novel, uh, Dombey and Son. I'm reading, well, I'm obviously not reading it. I'm listening to it as an audiobook at the minute and it is like 44 hours long or something. <laughs> it is epic and I'm loving it. Really? So you decided yes. after the Ada Lovelace podcast to go on and read this book? Uh, yeah, listen definitely. to this book. Well, wow. Yeah. Yes, I, lo- oh, I love a Dickens. And if you get a really good um, voice actor, like a Shakespearean actor doing it a Dickens on Audible, it is so funny. I can't tell you how funny Dickens can be. So good. Anyway, just for thank the listeners, you for that. Just for all our listeners, mm-hmm. uh, me and Caroline did an English literature degree together. And yes. I admit, and I'm almost shocked, I've never read a Dickens novel. I still can't believe it. I don't know how I got to having a a degree in English Lit and I've not read Dickens. Well, I mean, I did my absolute best to avoid Shakespeare altogether (laughs) the whole time. So we all have our things. I could, like, soak up Shakespeare, so... Did I copy your notes or something? I don't remember how I got through it. Anyway, we should talk about Hilda. Back to Hilda. (laughs) Thank you for that, though. That was some great digression, though. Great chat. Thanks very much. (laughs) So, um, after John Reith... At this point, he's not happy about Lady Chatley's lover. So he imposes censorship on programming. No, exactly. Never goes well. Nah. So Hilda goes, nah, not having it. I will not accept this. And she... I love her. Resigns. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's full of... That's a big move. It is, because she kind of leaves it like, oh, well, do what you want then. I'm going to go over here. Did she go and start Channel 4? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is <laughs> the origins of <laughs> Channel 4. <laughs> That's where this was going, wasn't it? Forget the BBC. <laughs> there is um, somebody, I can't remember which article I read this in, but someone seems to have suggested that actually one of the reasons that all this conflict really kicked off was because Hilda had this assistant who seemingly was a gay guy who outed her as a lesbian to Reith, and Reith was unhappy about that. And Is that, that, that because he loved Hilda? <laughs> no, I think just because he was um, a homophobe. A prick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So did the uh, gay assistant? Did anyone know that he was gay? Oh, who knows? I mean, this was just like a sentence that I read in an article. So it was probably complete lies. I, I think actually it's more likely to have been the loose morals of the Bloomsbury Group and Lady Chatterley's lover. That to me sounds more realistic. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... In early 1932, she leaves the BBC and she starts doing some other things. She's a radio critic. Um, she ends her relationship with Vita and she begins a long-term, I think until her death actually, relationship with the poet Dorothy Wellesley, who was Duchess of Wellington, la-di-da. Mm. Um, I, I don't really know much about her. And then she writes a book about called Broadcasting in 1933, which is all about technology, the technology of radio, and apparently was still being cited as a text in the 1990s talking about technology and radio. So, you know, wow. really an important book she wrote there. Then it gets a bit weird. So she's left the BBC now, and now what she decides to go do is the African survey. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> the like, where African does this come survey. From? Yeah. So there's seemingly there's some so this is like at the end of colonial British Empire times where you've got we've withdrawn from India and it's been a hot mess, there's been a whole mutiny, and we're trying to pull out of Africa as well. And there needs to be some important research around how we the British hand over to sub-Saharan Africa to make it independent? What's the general state of things? What are the problems out there? And how can we deal with things appropriately? So she went over there to support Lord Haley, I think his name was, um, or someone else. Anyway, the guy who was meant to be doing it was a bit useless and or got sick and never really got it off the ground. She was only meant to be a secretary, but she basically did most, if not all, of the legwork by the sound of it. So this is this is an important report about the state of things out there in sub-Saharan Africa. It's almost 2,000 pages long. It gets published in 1938 and apparently was found on the desk of every important minister or person across Africa at the time. This was like a PhD thesis. Yeah, kind of. I mean, she had a team of people she was coordinating and everything, and there were anthropologists and scientists and all sorts of people involved. But it seems like she was basically the executive manager. And Sandy Toxvig, in her um, summary, it was, I mean, she only, there was only about three or four sentences about Hilda Matheson in this Sandy Toxvig thing. But she said that she did most of the work and Lord Haley took the credit for it. And that's of what... Yeah, and that's what piqued my interest in Hilda, really, more even than the BBC, was, hold on, a man took the credit for the hard work that you did. But when I look into it a little bit more, to be fair, she did do a lot of work, she did make it happen, but she also got awarded an OBE the year after for her efforts in making the project happen in the end. So she so got an OBE, OBE how many years later? The year after, I believe. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to read you exactly the wording because this is just from Wikipedia. She was awarded the Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, OBE, for her effort in concluding the project the following year. So did she conclude the project the following year or did she get the OBE the following year? I don't know. That's Answers on clear. postcards. And that's all to do with the, the African... Uh... Survey. Survey. Yes. After finishing this survey, which is a bit of a random, <laughs> random period in her life, she and her partner, the poet Wellesley, take a trip to the Riviera, very nice, where they join their friends, W.B. Yates and his oh. wife, George. Yeah, so she's hobnobbing with all the literary amazing types of the time. Uh -huh. And Walter J. Turner, an Australian poet. So she's hanging out with poets. And then 
When it comes to World War II in 1939, she begins to serve as director of the Joint Broadcasting Committee, which is set up to counter German propaganda. So they're putting out British opinion broadcast so programs in German, in Italian, to get them out there to counter German propaganda. So it's like to counter fake news? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, and to try and just slip it in there so that Germans have both sides of the story, essentially. Huh. Yeah. Um, she's got 30 staff at this point, one of whom is Elspeth Huxley, who's the cousin of Aldous Huxley, and Turner, the poet. Um, They're all in each of us pockets, aren't they? Yeah, they are. She's definitely been, ever since she's met this Lady Astor, she's been circulating in the in the top uh, echelon of society, I think, really. The, the 1%. Yes. Yeah. So that's 1939. She's starting to do this work. 30th of October, 1940, she dies. How old is she? So she would be 50... Um, yeah, 52, is that right? Or 62. Oh, my God, math. So she was born in 1888, 12... Yeah, 52. That's no age, is it? No, that's pretty young. Yeah, it and really that's, is. That's a year after the war had started, right? Mm-hmm. Not even a year, quite. Where was she when she died? Um, I believe she was more or less at home at this point. She wasn't out in Germany or anything. Um, okay, she was in Britain. She, yeah, so she died of Graves' disease, which is to do with... Oh, um, the thyroid. Oh, of course, I always forget you know all this stuff, don't you? <laughs> I'm medical. Yeah. <laughs> so but she you know, had... people people do not die from Graves' disease these no. days, you know. In, in fact, she had um, thyroidectomy surgery and she died after that. So I don't know if she actually died Maybe from the disease or the surgery. Yeah. The surgery, yeah. Maybe an infection. I, if it was wartime so. and they didn't necessarily have access to the same things that they might usually have access to then. You yeah. know, if, uh, like in coronavirus mm-hmm. times, if the hospitals are compromised, then what a shame. I know. She was definitely cut short, I feel. I feel she could have been a real... Ch- Can you imagine if she'd lived into the 1960s or 70s when the women's movement was starting? Can you imagine... Would have... Imagine the uh, mm. episode of This Is Your Life. Like, <laughs> if she'd been allowed <laughs> to live in, into her 80s and yeah. 90s, like hobbling onto the stage. Yeah. What's, what's the name <laughs> of a centenarian? Imagine if she'd got to 100. <laughs> the story uh. in that red book about her. And, the, and But this is the weird thing, is that after she died, basically we forgot about her. I mean, that's what bothers me about this, is that she's kind of been written out. I mean, this thing, weird thing about the BBC website, this weird thing about the African survey where she gets, like, none of the credit, although she does get the OBE, admittedly, but then what happens to her after that? Why has she disappeared? I mean, I found this one Vice article, you know, Vice's. I mean, it was, of all places, I found this great article about her and the title of it was The Forgotten Queer Woman Who Revolutionised Radio. And that's great. I mean, and then in the content of it, they say that she doesn't even have her own Wikipedia page. And this article... Does she not? Well, she does now because that's largely what I base this on. But in 2016 was when this article was written. And apparently she didn't even have a Wikipedia page in 2016. So four years ago. What on earth? Um, So, I mean, she's now starting to come back into our consciousness, obviously, the the fact that we've discussed, you know, Sandy's raising uh, the flag for poor Hilda here as well. And there's been Uh a novel by someone called Sarah Jane Stratford called Radio Girls. And it is a novel, but it is 
based on um, Hilda's life to an extent. And there's also this character called Maisie who becomes um, Hilda Matheson's protege, who apparently was inspired by Peggy Olsen in Mad Men, who we both love. Wait, hang on. So Peggy Olsen... That mm-hmm. character was inspired by... No, 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 no. So there's a novel about Hilda Matheson. Uh-huh. And in the novel, Hilda has a protege. And that character is inspired by Peggy in Mad Men. And that would suggest that um, Hilda's uh, character is... Uh, what's his face? Who's who's uh, Peggy Olsen's uh, manager in Mad Men? What's his name? Oh, interesting point. Dan Draper. Don Draper. Don, Don Draper, yeah. That's almost like... Wow. Uh, comparing the two, of isn't it? That I wonder. Hmm. That's that's giving me a whole new line of thought that I haven't got time to indulge in right now. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna take that one away with me and see how how comparable they are. Um. So yeah. So there's this novel called Radio Girls. Um. There was this Vice article. The National Portrait Gallery has three photographs of her. Two of them are basically the same. And one of them is her in safari gear, presumably out in Africa. I'll put that link on the um, website. I'm not sure if I can share that or not. But actually, other than that, there's been, I think, two biographies. uh, But one of them, at least, was self-published by the guy who wrote it because nobody wanted to take it on and has apparently just dropped into obscurity and no one can find a copy anymore. So it's disappointing. I know. So that's the story of Hilda Matheson, who created Ma- BBC News and then was forgotten. I feel like you need to write this biography. <laughs> well, there already is a biography. It's just been lost. <laughs> I need to get in touch with the author. That's what I need to do and help yeah. him crowdfund some sort of revival for it. <sighs> um, guys out there, if you're listening and you want a copy of this and you want to send some love to the author or authors of these biographies, then please let us know and we will pass on the love. Yeah, um, if there is and- a thirst for more Hilda, then yes. we will help you. Yeah, Quench I mean, there's, first. there's all this correspondence. There's loads of letters and stuff. Really interesting. And Sandy Toxvig will definitely be on this campaign. I know she will. We get a pet- Sandy, petition going. Mm-hmm. Sandy, if you're listening, we would love to have you on <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen real soon, guys. <laughs> Especially in coronavirus times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah. Hey, actually, maybe this is our time to reach out to these people because if they're in lockdown, they might actually have a bit of spare time on their hands. Yeah, well... You know, I saw a video on Facebook of... What's his face? Andrew Lloyd Webber just playing his hits on his piano in his living room for people. <laughs> What's he? It's like, oh, here's one I made earlier. La, 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 la. Can you guess it? Uh, like, you may- don't think maybe these... these people are looking for something to do. Well, yeah, but also because they've had all their really well-paid gigs cancelled, maybe they're charging 12 times more than they would normally charge for a 10-second appearance on a podcast. I don't know. Or maybe I mean... they just want the exposure. <laughs> yeah, I think probably someone like T- Sandy Toxwig needs the exposure from our <laughs> podcast, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right, Lou, I think that's probably enough for one night. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I grilled you hard on Hilda and I kept interrupting you, so I apologise for that, but that was fascinating. No, don't apologise. It wasn't as bad as uh, Margaret Cavendish, where I really embarrassed me. You know, I I re-listened to that episode while we were editing the other night and, uh, yeah, really embarrassed myself with the whole 
were they Catholics thing. Of course they were Catholics. I'm, I, it's going to be one of those on my deathbed, you know, the, the priest will, will lean over me and he'll go, you knew they were Catholics, right? I'm <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I, I knew that. I don't know why I just couldn't <laughs> think. It's so funny how you just go blank. Um, but I don't deny that there are enough, there are plenty of things that we just don't know and we are learning. And that's why I'm having a good time on here is because, you know, I'd, I don't mind looking too stupid if it means that we learn something interesting, especially about a woman that did something great that we didn't know about until we sat down and started to look. So uh, remind me, what's Hilda's surname? Because we talk about we talk about her all the time as Hilda, but what was her surname? <laughs> Matheson, M-A-T-H-E-S-O-N. Hilda Matheson. Hilda Matheson. Yeah. Well done, Hilda. And I'm sorry that you seem to have been written out of history. But did Kate Fox bring up Hilda? Maybe because she wasn't from the North. She Maybe wasn't that's from why the North. She didn't. But to be fair, I think Kate had enough Hildas on her hands. <laughs> she had she like did. four of them, yeah. Uh, yeah, so thank you, Hilda, for being. And I'm glad that we had some Virginia and Vita links because we love a bit of that, don't we? So... Yeah, that, it almost brings it closer to home, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. You know, I can't wait until this whole coronavirus thing is over so that we can go and plan our next girl trip on Absolutely. a woman that we've learned about. It's too exciting. Okay, I'm going to say goodnight now. I need to top up my wine. So, you know, time to go, right? <laughs> and <laughs> uh, But we'll we'll be here same time next week, I think, by the sound of it. We're going to try and do this every week, right? We are. We're aiming to. Yeah, we'll see how Unless that goes. Unless you have coronavirus or I have coronavirus. Oh, yeah, there is. I mean, well, let's we not might, let it defeat us. I mean. <laughs> but we might give each other a week off if, if we Maybe. have the virus. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> if we can forgive each other. Yeah. All right, darling. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for anyone that has listened to this episode as well. Uh, I hope you all stay safe. Um, and big love, guys. Yeah, thank you for all that, Caroline. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll say good night and goodbye. Good night until I see you again. Bye.